Hey, you guys, welcome back to my channel. Today is a very special day for the Devotional Hearts Show. I've asked a father to be my guest who I have been watching on his channel. It's called The Royal Path, and it's pretty new. And um, his name is Father Turbo Qualls. He's the newest member of Patristic Faith. If you don't know what that is, I will leave the link in the description. And I'm going to read his bio on Patristic Faith. It says, Father Turbo is the rector at St. Mary of Egypt Serbian Orthodox Church in Kansas City, Missouri, where he lives with his wife, Juliana, and their eight children. Father Turbo is also a retired professional tattoo artist who's having studied iconography within the Prosponis School of Iconography, and most notably under the contemporary master iconographer, Father Stamatis. Sorry. This is a tough one. Stamatis. Stamatis Clearis. Clearis of Athens. Father Turbo further augmented his education and skill in iconography by completing the Antiochian House of Studies course in theology with an emphasis in iconology. Father Turbo is also the former dean of chapters for the National Chapter of the Brotherhood of St. Moses, excuse me, St. Moses the Black. He has lectured in various parts of the United States in regard to the work of evangelization and cultural outreach within the U.S. As a former youth minister within the evangelical church, Father Turbo has dedicated much of his life and work to the pragmatic and tangible articulation of Orthodox spirituality to both young people and spiritual seekers. Father Turbo, welcome to my show. Uh, thanks for having me. What a joy. And uh, I, <laughs> I'm i so glad you have at least an hour and a half to talk with me because I have a list of questions for you, quotes that I've written down from interviews, such as the one with Brother Augustine, mm -hmm. um, that I would really love for you to elaborate on. And um, one thing I want to tell you that I admire about you so much is that your wisdom is practical guidance mixed with really deep understanding of scripture and orthodoxy, the liturgy, the sacraments. You know, every time I watch the royal path, I learn something new that I can actually apply to my life. I feel like you talk about the world we live in today in such a way that we can understand it through our Lord and through the light of Christ. This is something that you bring up a lot is that um, this light of Christ is there to cleanse us, illuminate our lives. And um, that this path of orthodoxy is really about transformation, which is a theme that I talk about all the time on my channel. <laughs> so um, this is why I, I listen to you as often as I can, because I feel like you're really giving us tangible, useful, um, not just theological, you know, the theological mm. is, is in there for sure, which, which I love, but also it's like balanced with practical wisdom, which is something that as, as it says in your bio that you've worked with youth and, mm -hmm. um, you know, I really see you as this guide, very wise, 
elder, even though you're not that old, I, no, your wisdom I'm not very is, wise either, but <laughs> I guess, well, you're being, you're being humble, which is amazing as well. But, um, I just, I, you can tell I'm so excited. <laughs> I can barely contain my excitement to have this opportunity to have you bless my channel and my audience. So thank you. Thank you so much. My joy. It's true. So I, I, um, I know a little bit about your past and we have mm-hmm. some things in common. Uh, we're both tattooed yeah, and we're both, we were interested in world mythology in our, in our younger years. And I heard you say that um, learning about world history, the Norse mythology, mm-hmm. other cultures, especially like Eastern mysticism, Eastern cultures, that was really fascinating to you and, and visually as well. And that got you into becoming an iconographer um, eventually. Mm-hmm. So could you start from the beginning and tell my audience how, how did this progression <laughs> to orthodoxy happen? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thank you again for being here. Um, or allow me to be here. It's just really great. I, it's real tough because there's so many different aspects we could we could kind of approach any of our lives, right? Because none of us are this kind of like static, flat thing, right? There's so many facets to who we are. But I think to try to be succinct and to try to get where we're at, um, I think it's important to start kind of in my family. And what I mean by that is I was surrounded by art. I was surrounded by art and by music and I guess the shorthand for right now is I was surrounded by life. I was surrounded by a mother and a father who embraced life. And that embracing of life was the the, the totality of life. My parents did live lives that were trying to present a kind of manicured existence. Um, My father never really hid from me the the trials and the tribulations that he went through as, as a man. And my mother never really presented to us, again, the best term I can use is a manicured life, you know, but it was filled with beauty and it's filled with struggle. And so those two things have always been a part of my life. And I think in many ways, that kind of seed of understanding that those those lenses, those perspectives of life, they kind of helped me gravitate to what I gravitated to, including, as silly as it sounds, comic books and, and narrative and story. Mm-hmm. And that allowed me to really have some sort of a lens or some sort of a palette for what made good story. And that understanding of good story and good narrative is what led me down the path of, you know, being a spiritual seeker to eventually orthodoxy. So it's all kind of baked in there in the beginning, but, you know, I, um, I grew up in Orange County, uh, which is a a suburb uh, in Southern California. And it's kind of important to understand this too is, you know, my family were the first uh, Black family in this town that we lived in. Hmm. My father, I'm the baby of four. And so my father had moved us uh, from L.A. to there before I was born. And that kind of set a whole nother tone, if you will, because growing up, you know, kind of like the odd man out. Um, for me, I learned to embrace that and not have it be something that would make me bitter or something that would, you know, make me paranoid. It was just kind of part of my narrative. And in fact, it helped me to gravitate towards certain characters and certain anti-heroes growing up. I, I found solace and I found kind of like guideposts through narrative. And I think 
looking back on it, this is something that I think helped develop in me a kind of internal compass that the Lord grabbed a hold of and the Lord has used and looking back that the Lord is, that's part of how he made me, you know? So growing up in this, in this context, and I went to a, a I went to a Christian school um, at a young age and, and that was important because in that school, um, you know, the kind of mandatory reading of scripture, the mandatory uh, attending of chapel and things like that on Fridays, that also inculcated in me uh, an understanding of the scriptures and being able to navigate the scriptures and knowing the kind of story of Jesus, the story of the people of Israel. And so having this story, having this narrative, this meta narrative playing in the background, it was always a part of me. And it's always something, you know, you can't get away from who you are. Right. Um, And I think for me, I never really wanted to in that sense. I just kind of always have learned to embrace who I was. And so growing up in that, um, that was the context for me having some sort of of a spiritual palette, understanding Um, like I keep saying narrative, but it's really important to understand because I think for a lot of people, including children, narrative is the on-ramp by which they begin to understand spirituality. Mm -hmm. And I find that children who have been given the, the, the lens and the tools to understand narrative, they also do a much better job in, in living a spiritual life. You know, St. Perfidios, he says that the Christian has the soul of a poet, you know, or if one is to be a Christian, he must have the soul of a poet. And I find that to be very true because it's, in that lens of poetry and narrative and story that you begin to digest spiritual principles and truths, because in order for you to really digest, it has to be taken out of the kind of abstract and has to become concrete to you. And I think narrative allows us to take things like wisdom and and all these in symbol and makes it applicable to your life. And so I learned that early on through these things of like, you know, everything I'm laying out, even getting into like being a comic book nerd and <laughs> and playing Dungeons and Dragons and things like that. But, you know, those things, that was my childhood. You know, I, I grew up at an interesting time. I, I grew up, this is another thing that I grew up at a time where, um, and I know people are going to roll their eyes and just go crazy over this, but um, anime, uh, Japanese animation. I grew up in a time, I was born in 1976. So I grew up at a time in California where there was these cartoons uh, Battle of the Planets, G-Force, you know, Transor Z, Voltron, all these, all these stories, but also this, this animation style, which was simple. It was flat to a degree, but there was a depth to it. That tension between what is flat and depth, um, simple use of color palette to really kind of bring forward, you know, these incredible images of, of just power and life and excitement. This also prepped me for the icon. There's a lot. There's a lot of similarity in regards of you know. There's 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 our simple steps to properly do or at least do anime at the time, and all those things are brought together with line, with the line. You know, the same concept is there in the icon. So for me, there's so much. And, and the thing about orthodoxy is it's it's been so familiar to me already, and it's it's this whole background that's been playing in this whole thing playing in the background of my life, all these things that seem like they don't match for me, they were all the parts of the mosaic that God had been putting together for me so that when the time was ready and I was willing, I opened my eyes spiritually, he opens my eyes and I see Christ. Right. And so 
this kind of mosaic has been what I've been following my whole life. But growing up, you know, I, I, I was into all these various things and eventually, you know, getting out of primary school and getting into public school and junior high and high school and um, discovering punk rock and discovering politics and, you know, uh, as much as I could understand it, you know, uh, kind of protest culture, anarchy, you know, all of these things that um, someone growing up at, at, in my time, you know, my older sister, I had a sister who's five years older than me. So she introduced me to subculture. And so this began to be a, a major force in my life, um, seeing that there's other people who didn't live like the kind of status quo. And there's all this music that's speaking about things, you know, about life that I'd never, I never saw life in that lens. But at the same time, it was really familiar because it reminded me of the type of things that my, I would hear my dad talk about with, with my mom or my aunts. You know what I mean? It, it, was, it was just enough of a resonance to make me feel comfortable to want to enter into and, and to be intrigued. So subculture is this huge, you know, it's another major on-ramp for me um, that I took, which was really necessary because that's where I began to understand the value of struggle and suffering and, and that being part of a narrative mm. and the struggle and suffering, if you will, kind of being the, the dark colors that need to be in the painting, that need to be in the mosaic to bring forward the light, you know, huge for me, huge for me. So yeah, I, I grew up in that and all along the way, you know, I never disregarded anything. It's not like, okay, now that I'm into punk rock, I'm like, oh, comic books is like kitty stuff, you know? Or now that I'm, you know, getting into libertarianism, um, I'm I'm never being like, oh, okay, that time of me being into like the Vedas, that was just back then. All those things were just a part of me. And, I, and I'm, I'm always sitting back and, and wanting things to be assimilated to find harmony. It's just something that God's given me, I guess. But what I'm trying to say is I never jettisoned certain things. You know, they're, they're kind of boiled out. Um, the, I, I try to spit the bones out, if you will. But I'm trying to paint a picture for you because there's all these different facets of who I am. And they're disparate in many ways, but God has found a way for them to all kind of find harmony and make sense, you know. I know it's super vague, but. <laughs> no, no, I relate to that too. And so yeah. when you found orthodoxy, what was it like when you went to your first divine liturgy? Was it like, oh my gosh, this is, this is amazing. Or was it kind of strange at first? Yeah. I think the thing is for me was there was such a longing at that point. Um, I had this Damascus road encounter with Christ and actually I should, it's kind of an inverted Damascus road. I, it wasn't with Christ. It was with darkness. And I saw that this darkness that I was enveloped in was seducing me and that, you know, hell wasn't this heavy metal album cover. You know, there was nothing great about it. And waking up from this, um, this dance I had been doing um, these whispers that were seducing me, it was terrifying. And that drove me quickly into the arms of Christ because it was like, well, if, if what I'm encountering now is evil is really, as I've understood it, demonic, then also I understand that Christ must be real. And so now I'm, I'm, I'm fleeing and trying to run to find Christ. And, and I say that because 
it wasn't a Damascus Road experience in regards of Christ comes to me and says, here's who I am, but rather I'm awakening and rejecting that darkness. And now I'm on a process of seeking Christ. And this is important because I spent years seeking and, and, and be him guiding me, but me not really understanding that at the time. But I look back and see how he was shepherding me. But years as an evangelical and years of doing the best that I can with very little, you know, a kind of anemic understanding. So there's always this hunger for more. Yeah. I'm in these evangelical churches and I know that what's being presented to me is flat. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why, but I just know that Christ is real. So I'm there. I'm a good soldier. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not wanting to let go of the rub of Christ, but I'm just hungering and hungering. So this is important because by the time that the Lord started showing to me the church and, and I'll tell you the story, you've probably heard it before, but in a nutshell, my wife had been working for a couple and they wanted to get to know us better. So they invited, get to know me better. She had been working and managing their pizza parlor for like five plus years. So when we walked into their house in the foyer, there was this icon of Christ, a Pantocrator, and I just lost my mind. It was, it was incredible. That is the point. That's the point in history. I go like, that's when this all started with orthodoxy and it was the icon and it was this, Beckoning. It's like the Lord beckoning me to him. I can hear his, his call, this teshuva, this, this call of the shepherd. And from that point on, that hunger took on a whole nother level because now it wasn't just this kind of abstract, I'm hungry for the Lord. What does that mean? It's like, no, I'm hungry for the Lord. I'm hungry for the Lord concretely in history, concretely how he incarnated and revealed himself. Yeah. So I have to say this because you understand by the time I made it to my first liturgy, it's like, I'm ready to chain myself to the door and say, I'm not leaving until you baptize me, right? There was this, it was this, this insatiable hunger. So my first liturgy, I don't know how to explain it. Everything, everything that I had been looking for, everything that I kind of understood, everything began to make sense. That walking into the temple the first time and seeing this huge icon of Christ and the, and the 24 elders and all this, it was just like, what? Like, this is it. But there's still more, you know, there there was still more. And so that first liturgy was amazing. And I began a process of, of wanting to be initiated. And um, I actually started off, my first liturgy was actually um, at Archangel Michael. It was a Coptic church and it was, it was incredible. It was beautiful and all these things, but there were still some things that were difficult for me. And there were things culturally, you know, as an American, there's, there's things that um, I wasn't able to, I couldn't work them out on my own. Mm-hmm. And that's important because it was at that point, you know, talking with my wife and it was even more so for her, there were things that we just weren't getting that we knew we needed, but this is a tough place to be. And I know a lot of people are there where it's, you know, that you need something more, but you don't know enough to know what it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. And, and I found myself precisely at, at that place. And I'm thankful for it because all these, all these experiences, these are all the things that ha- that helped me to help others as a spiritual father and as a priest, because I, I understand from experience what that feels like. Mm-hmm. So we're there for, for, a, for a while. And the Abunas there, they were great. Abuna uh, Athanasius, wonderful priest, great priest, very kind, very accommodating. And here's the thing, very humble. Um, he was always very clear about 
his limitations of being able to help me understand orthodoxy. And, and that was huge for me. He didn't overstep himself. He was humble and he said, I don't know if I can help you where you need help, you know? And he began to kind of suggest that maybe I, I check out uh, the parish down the street, check something else out. And I just, I wasn't sure. So then finally my wife said to me, she said, I, I, I think I need more. You know, I, there's a disconnect here. It's hard for me. And um, she said, you know, I think she mentioned some people who ended up being our godparents eventually. She said, I think the berries, I think that they had converted. I think maybe should I, you know, reach out to them? I said, yes, reach out to them. Let's see what happens. So she called, she called her up, uh, Trina, it's my godmother and said, hey, had talked to you for a while. We, they went to the same Calvary Chapel. They had converted a couple of years earlier and they said, hey, this is where we're at. And she just you know, my godmother is just so full of joy. She's like, oh, yes, please come, please come. You'll love it. So she invited us to come to um, St. Barnabas, Antiochian Church, which ended up being our parish. And we went in. And when we went in, that first liturgy, that was that was it. Because everything, the, the, the liturgy, the first one, that first one was incredible. Everything was there, but there was still something there. And when we went there, and it was this familiarity is being able to be around people. And that's why there's nothing wrong. There's value in being able to connect with people culturally. Like we need that. That's how we're built, right? And so being able to connect with people who are, you know, Americans and converts and have this experience, you know, it's like, how do I know what's valuable? Do I need to get rid of everything? Do I, what, what do I keep? What do I need to get rid of? That was so huge for me. And being at that parish, that's what the Lord, that's where the Lord led us because we needed some of those questions answered. And so from there on out, it was just, just let's go, you know, and it's been great. It's the rest is kind of history, you know? And so how much of your time are you spending painting? I don't really know that much about your art. Well, now, um, <laughs> now I'm spending a lot, you know, I'm doing my whole temple, the whole temple of our, oh. our parish here. So, um, like even now, right before here, I was like in the altar, um, working on the mother of God. So, um, I spend quite a lot, you know, um, I have all my pastoral duties. I tend to have my family that I tend to, and I try to do better and not have the go out of balance, right? I always need to do better with my family. But basically, once the kids go down, you know, it's like I spend my nights praying and, and, and painting. So I'm painting every day at night, all night, you know, sometimes. And wow. Yeah. yeah it's, it's a real joy. It's a real joy. So, Father, I would love to get into some of these questions that I have sure. for you and um, some things that I've heard you say on the royal path that really struck me as being very deep and I want to know more. So um, one of the, one of the main things, well, one of the many main things you talk about is false light. And I, I'm particularly interested in false light because that's part of my story of how I became a Christian was starting to recognize false light after about three decades of being immersed in it and not having it the eyes to see that I was being deceived. And um, so just in general, um, what are some of your thoughts about having discernment and being able to recognize what is the light of Christ versus what is Luciferian? And not yeah. 
Well, I think um, one of the key things is that discernment is the greatest of virtues. It's the greatest of gifts that we can have. It's the greatest in many ways. Um, because if you have discernment, then you have to have love. You can't have discernment without love. Mm. Love of God and love of you know your fellow man. And that's the cross, right? The cross is the, the vertical, which is us and God, the horizontal, which is us and our fellow man. So you need to have both of those together. Um, and so discernment absolutely will act will automatically include that and so um it's a gift that most everyone has the access to it because if you're in christ then you have access to it but because of various things you know the lord knows us and he gives us spiritual fathers um, to help us um, have a more succinct and direct access to that that gift of discernment Right. And so when you understand that this discernment, this knowing what is of Christ and what isn't is key for us to walk the spiritual path, then you begin to, um, shall we say, incorporate the, the church life in such a way that everything feeds that discernment. Yeah. Right. So my reading of scripture, why am I reading scripture? You know, well, if I'm reading scripture for information, that's pretty luciferic actually mm -hmm. because you're reading scripture to get information because why do you want to appear a certain way? Do you want to win, you know, arguments and battles with people or do you want to know the love of your soul? Do you want to be purified? Do you, do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. This is, this is a key thing in regards of getting into false light and getting discernment is that the battle is easy to reject gross, obvious things, right? Obvious lust, obvious violence. Those things are easy. What becomes more difficult are those things that are wrapped in a cloak of decency, as Bob Dylan would say, <laughs> versus, you know, this, this true discernment, which is the love of God and the love of our, of our fellow man. And those two things have to be there together. If you, if you have one without the other, this is another type of false light. People get caught up in, you know, a quote unquote love of God, a zeal to the detriment of their fellow man. This is not of the Lord, right? This is like the person saying, shut up. I'm trying to say the Jesus prayer, you know, like that. That's, that's not of God. That's false, you know, or the person who would leave off of the love and truth of who Christ is for the sake of, you know, quote unquote, you know, the better social good. That's a problem too. We see a lot of that in these days, right? And so discernment, one of the first steps of discernment is the love of God, the love of your fellow man, but also the balance of the two. That can help you maintain a, that kind of, you know, rural path of, of not going to the left or to the right. And, you know, we have all these things in our life. We have uh, godparents to help us. We have our priests, we have our spiritual fathers. We have others in the church, you know, deacons, um, you know, if you are blessed enough to be around a monastery, maybe you have nuns or such that you can go to to help. But, you know, I, I think it's really important. I think it's probably one of the key defining. I don't like to necessarily speak about orthodoxy in, in the regards of like, like a sales pitch, like, well, here's the benefits and here's the negatives. But there's value to this, right? Because one of the defining aspects of orthodoxy is this idea of prelist of not falling into prelates, not falling into spiritual delusion, not thinking yourself more advanced. And 
for many of us who were, you know, neck deep into the new age, you find that that's the driving principle is this prelist, is this self-delusion of like, oh, how enlightened I am Mm -hmm. and and all, and, you know, I know so much and I've, I've, I've achieved, I've achieved these levels of spirituality and the deception when you wake up from it is, is heartbreaking, but it's also so liberating. Mm-hmm. And so I think watching out for anything that would say, this is where I need to be, or this is where I want to be. That I is Luciferic, right? It's really about where is Christ, you know? Um, and this is the cross, right? Not just the the love of God and man, but also what that love looks like. It looks like denial of self. It looks like the denial of self for the sake of the other. These principles, these truths are, um, you know, when we when we really assimilate these things deep in us, they end up becoming just kind of second nature. And I, and I just want to say. One of the things that's so much hard, that's so hard for many of us is this thought that people say like, oh, well, you'll never really be Orthodox because, you know, you're American or because, you know, you're whatever. We have to reject that because to be Orthodox means to love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. And anyone who wants to do that can do it. If it wasn't the case, then the Lord wouldn't give us the church. Right. Everything is given to us so that we can keep his commandments and love him with our whole being. And when if we love him with our whole being, we have to be humble. And if we're loving him with our whole being and we are humble, then what happens is he'll guide us. And we just need to learn to not push his hand away when he is guiding us. When he says to us, this isn't for you, you know, we don't get upset about it. We say, yes, Lord. Right. And we receive his correction because his correction is there to keep us safe, to keep us away Mm -hmm. from oftentimes ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. So. Oh, gosh, there's so many, so much I want to get into for me. Yeah, for sure. Up, I just, you got to rein me up. in because I'll, <laughs> I'll just keep going. <laughs> I, uh, but, but the next thing that I have written down does tie into this. You said once all of creation is meant to be deified. What did you mean by that? Well, this is a teaching of the fathers, all of, all of creation. Um, we were given our, our charge was to lead all of creation into this deification, into this union with God. And God, God is interpenetrating the world with himself. Right. And when you understand this and you can begin to understand that we're, in fact, we were talking about this last night, there, there is nothing mundane. One of the problems with the new age and especially the way that we have kind of uh, imbibed it, in our modern time is that so much of it is about the sensational. So much of it is about these, you know, profound, you know, flashy movements and experiences. And even the stillness that you try to pursue, even that is, has a flashiness to it. But what you find is that again, seduction is the big theme almost right now because it's so seductive and it moves you away. There's nothing seductive about a woman tending to her snotty-nosed kids who are yelling and screaming and her husband whose back is hurting because he was working all day. You know, there's nothing seductive about a man who's tending to his wife who's, you know, having struggles because of her health. Do you understand what I'm saying? But what it is is you're now getting the glimpse of true love, of true life. That's the key, Mm -hmm. right? And so orthodoxy strips so much of that away from us. Even the icon 
strips away the the oversaturation of the phone and the, and the 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 flash of all the images on the screen. The the icon settles us down. It puts a fast upon us. Mm-hmm. It puts a fast on the on the modern eye and says no. What is really here? Well, it's the mundane. It's the simple. It's, it's, it's whatever's, you know, the earthiness. So I say all that to say, you have to get this understanding first before we can get into this profound truth about the, the cosmos being deified and man leading the cosmos into it. It's as simple as a man learning to eat his food with prayer instead of just opening the fridge and scarfing something down. You learn to bless your food and to invoke the name of Christ over that sandwich, right? You begin to sit in the car, make the sign of the cross, travel down the highway and not be so enraptured with bombarding with music and news and all this and that. You turn off the radio, feel the, feel the hum of that, that, that iron horse that you're riding. Understand the movement, like begin to feel the, the hum of everything around you and you, you bless the Lord's name. That is bringing all of matter to him as a priest. Yeah. And that's what we're all called to do. Does that kind of give a little glimpse into it? Yeah. I mean, even I've, I've lived in the same home for almost 20 years and I have this walk that I do almost every day and becoming a Christian and and walking and appreciating and just looking at God's creation, like, oh my gosh, this is just even the tiny, I'll look at a piece of uh, bark that has moss growing on it. And, and, you know, when you're into psychedelics, you take the acid or whatever, and then you look and, oh, it's so intricate. It's so amazing. Well, I don't need psychedelics. I just have this deep, awe for the creation that God has given us. Right. And I hope and I have to tell you, forgive me. Well, I, I hate to interrupt because <laughs> no, this please. is such a great moment. I want to capitalize on that moment. Forgive me. I'm going to have to get on the soapbox real quick. If, if, if we who are in the church, who have this beauty and this access to life. If we would just understand, like we are Israel. And Israel's job was to tell all the nations around them about who God is, the love and the beauty and the truth of who the Lord is. That's our job now. That's why the Lord hasn't come back. So there's so many people because of psychedelic experiences, because of practicing mindfulness, all these things that maybe aren't Christian, but they are low hanging fruit where we say like, okay, you being able to appreciate all this stuff, that's great. But let me take you out of, pantheism Mm -hmm. let me take you out of paganism and let me show you prayer let me show you the lord let me take you to pentecost right so all of this mindfulness yes but now bless the name of the lord because he's the one who created it right you're slowing everything down you're 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 zooming in on the intricacies of the mosque great we'll take the moment to bless the lord and let's worship him and not the creation Right. The creation is going to enter you into him. Right. Right. And there's so many people who are ready for that. Mm -hmm. But we have to, we have to go through our own purification processes and we have to go through our own humility, our own moments of humility so that we can be the light on the hill and we can say to people, 
come, come and worship the Lord. Come and see the beauty. Does that, do you see what I'm getting at with yes, that? Yes, yes. And in New Age, we, I was worshiping myself because I was one with everything and therefore I'm God. And um, now it just seems like, oh my gosh, how did I even think that? But um, so in New Age, you know, there's, there's no emphasis on sacrifice, struggle, definitely nothing about repentance. And That's I know the key. You, you talk a lot about taking responsibility, you know, self responsibility. Um, and then you've also tied this in with woke culture. Mm-hmm. And I love how you talk about how the identity becomes um, for the woke culture. It's like they end up idolizing themselves. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that a little bit? I don't want to put words in your mouth sure. to say well, it so I mean, well. Well, honestly, identity for anyone becomes a, an idol. And I think that, uh, you know, that's the thing about what the fathers call the royal path is that there's always a temptation to the left or to the right and not understanding just left as in political spectrum as liberal and right as conservative, but left can also be, you know, these gross sins of the ma- of matter, like lust, drunkenness, gluttony, but also the sins of the right, which are actually worse. When we fall into pride, we fall into self-righteousness, mm-hmm. Um, it's better that you fall into gluttony than into than into self-righteousness because that self-righteousness is luciferic. And this, this taking of identity and worshiping identity and identitarian politics, as we understand it now, I mean, this is the big thing, the setting up of the self. But the setting up of the self is always to the detriment of the other, right? right? And so this is the kind of irony that I've tried to explain to people is that... Um, Whatever identity, whether it's LGBTQ, whether it's wokeism, whether it's white supremacy, whatever kind of supremacy, it's all fundamentally idolatrous. Yeah. And you end up making a caricature of that identity, mm-hmm. right? Because as soon as, you, as soon as you enter into identity in that sense, you're separating it from God. And once it's separated from God, it's luciferic and it becomes a caricature. And then you have this hollowing out that begins. And you notice this, anyone who is into identity in the sense that we talked about, no matter what the spectrum is, far right, far left, there is a hollowing out. They become these weird caricatures. They become so flat and so fanatical that that's all that they talk about. But the thing is, is so for us, maybe someone say, well, all you talk about is orthodoxy. Yes. But the thing is, is no one's going to accuse me of being flat. Why why is that? (laughs) Right? Because the depth is Christ. Right. Right. And so what happens is, is when you put our eyes and our focus on the one, on he who is, he is depth. He is life. He is the source of beauty. He is unsearchable. And so that's why there truly can never be a fanaticism in that sense, because if it's Christ, then there's depth and it's never boring and it's never flat. And identity will always lead you to this place of flatness and it's dry and it's dead and it's a good thing getting back to the false light. And it's it's important that <clears throat> people who are seeking and coming into orthodoxy. And even if you've been orthodox for three years, five years, 10 years, we always need to go deeper. If we're not going deeper, then we're going backwards. Mm-hmm. There's no plateau. If you're at a plateau, then you're at a danger of going backwards. Mm-hmm. The depth that we have to be brought into is always a depth and rejecting of ourselves. St. John the Baptist, I must decrease and he must increase. Yeah. So as a priest, my identity 
is in Christ. And yes, I'm a priest, but I never hold up my priesthood with God's help. I, you know, I always strive to never have it be the thing because the second that it does, people will start feeling it. They'll start feeling that I'm talking about me. I'm talking about what I got going on. Mm-hmm. No, my priesthood is there so I can point people to Christ, point them to Christ. And if people are going to be pointed to Christ, then everything's going to work out because right. you can't be pointed to Christ and not be shown humility, love, sacrifice, repentance, beauty, wisdom, joy. I mean, I can go on and on and on because it's found in him. And when we find ourselves in him, that's, that's, that's how he set it up. Your identity is in Christ. So what that means is you need to figure out your dispositions. You need to figure out, okay, I'm offering everything to Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's everything from how you eat, when you eat, to how you think about things. There's always a bigger, better you. Always. But it's only found in the light of Christ. Mm. Right? And so this is why the spiritual life is never boring. This is why you can read the scriptures and the fathers and you can say the same prayers and you can be at the liturgy forever. Because the depth there is unsearchable. Because when you pray, when you're in the liturgy, you are touching eternity. And you can't, there is no, there's no exhausting eternity. Mm-hmm. And this is why we can do it and we will do it forever. <laughs> right? Identity, you know you're caught up with identity when you start feeling flat and stale. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> Um, and then the next thing I have on my list here that you've said is about Fronima. Is that mm-hmm. how I, is that? Did I Fronima. Yeah. Fronima mm-hmm. is real. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. No, this is a different quote. Okay. First talk about Fronima. Cause I know a lot of my audience might not know what that means. Yeah. Fronima is basically understanding the, the, the inner, the inner pull of the church. You, some people can, you can translate it. Mind mindset worldview perspective kind of like, but really way of being, you know, it's this, it's this guiding compass and it's acquiring it. I just want to say some people will say, no, no, you can't have it. You got to be born in it. Baloney. Um, Cause no one's born in it. Everyone has to go through a conversion experience. Mm-hmm. Even if you're raised Russian, Greek, Serbian, at some point in time, you're going to have to convert and you're going to have to get your heart and your mind in a place where you're bowing your knee to the Lord and saying, like, not my way, Lord, but your way. Yeah. Once you do that and you begin to really imbibe the life of the church, then the pronima begins. But in this context of us being, quote, unquote, Westerners, being in the Eastern church, acquiring an Eastern Christian mindset, it has a great way to kind of explain it is there's a measure of faith. And what I mean by faith, I don't mean uh, rules and sets of, of teachings and, and, and doctrines. I mean, in regards of trust, faith equaling trust. There's this experience, right? You begin to acquire when you uh, when you're being guided by the Lord and you give your your trust to the Lord through the life in the church. Certain things you see, certain propensities that you will have that will begin to be challenged, and then over time you'll begin to let go of those propensities. And then God will put into you new propensities. So, for instance, a shorthand, although this isn't exactly it, but there's a certain type of conscience that you begin to develop. Certain things begin to, um, you begin to be more sensitive to the Holy Spirit because you begin to know 
who the Holy Spirit is versus the kind of natural inclinations that maybe you can't trust as much as you used to. You understand what I'm saying? I don't want to say intuition because that can be deceptive. I mean, more you begin to know it's pleasing to the Lord because you're studying the lives of the saints. You're, you're repenting, you're confessing, you begin to know what is more appropriate. And then you have a, a greater inclination towards those things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a right? That's viewing things in a way that is how the viewing things as the fathers in the church view it. And the fathers in the church views it that way because the Holy spirit has led and guided the fathers. Right, in the church. Right. Yeah. That's one of the things I love about orthodoxy is we have the Holy spirit through our fathers and um it's just a it's sad to me that some of the other western christian mm-hmm. um people don't read the fathers they don't yeah. know about the saints they think it's idolatrous to have images of our our, Lord our family our moms, they're our right? family exactly. right we're going to know them when we exactly. are in the kingdom so why not exactly. start get getting to know them now exactly <laughs> they're our family <laughs> exactly couldn't say it better that's it that's it um and then so when you said for people entering into orthodoxy remember that you're a guest mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about that because I, I love that concept well <clears throat> you know there's a reality that um there are if you go back to the book of Acts and the early church, there is this dynamic of those who were the Jews who were convert, you know, who became Christians, right? They just rolled over into the way, right? And there, there are the, the Greeks and the Gentiles that are being brought in. And so much of Paul's epistles are about them learning to get along with each other. And in fact, that's the reason why there's deacons, right? Deacons exist because the, um, the the widows, the Hellenistic widows felt like they were being neglected because of the Jewish widows. They were getting everything first. And so the apostles said, okay, let's elect seven men filled with the Holy Spirit. They're going to, you know, deal with the, the needs of, of these widows, right? That's where the diaconate is born out of, okay? So already we see this reality of, you know, Peter and Paul, Jew and Gentile. That's what, that's what compromises the church, Right. So when you begin to understand that, then you begin to understand that there's going to be people who have, you know, if you're in a Greek church, I mean, you know, I'm Greek. My family goes all the way back to whatever village, right? And, that, and that's great. And so when you, as a convert, when you enter into that, you have to understand that on the obvious level, you're a guest. You're coming in to this parish. They have their ways, their small tea traditions. They have their way of doing services. They have their, you know, festivals that they do, whatever it is. And as converts, when we come in, we have this blessing of a hunger and a thirst, and we have repentance on our side, you know, and this it's propelling us to just this great zeal. And this great zeal um, needs to be tempered at times. And one of the best ways for it to be tempered is recognizing that when we come in, it's not about doing everything correct because you read it in a book a certain way, mm-hmm. but it's recognizing the living experience and tradition, those people that have potentially been doing this for generations. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you come in as a guest. Now, this also goes back even further to the time of Abraham and hospitality and Abraham offering hospitality 
you know, uh, and this is where the hospitality of Abraham icon comes from, you know, now known as the Rubla of Trinity icon, right? But the spiritual principle of offering hospitality, it's core to, we are the, we are the Abrahamic faith. So in order to be Christians, we have to understand hospitality. And part of hospitality is also being a good guest and receiving. And, and this goes into Peter. When Do you remember when the Lord, he comes and he says, Peter, he begins to wash the feet of the apostles. And Peter's like, no, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And the Lord says to Peter, Peter, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, you have no part of me nor my kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so Peter says, yay, Lord, not just my feet, but also my head also. So we have to allow and welcome this hospitality. As a guest, you need to sit down at the table and be grateful. You need to mind your manners, but you also have to receive what's given to you. What is this dish here? It, try it. Try it with, with humility. Try it with excitement, right? And allow your host to serve you, right? Don't come and say like, well, why'd you cook it this way? Like at my house, I, you don't do that. Mm-hmm. If you do that, you're a terrible guest. Right. And so when you receive hospitality and when you are a guest, there comes a time when you'll also be a host and you learn how to be a good host by first receiving good hospitality. Hmm. Right. And so we have to allow, we have to have the humility to allow people to serve us. And so when you come into orthodoxy, that parish first and foremost, because that parish is the on-ramp to the church, right. Allow them to serve you. And they serve you by showing you and sharing with you, yes, the Eucharist, but also the life, the parish life, and all those things that come with it. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And you were also talking about the the roots, which again, you you've kind of already gone over this, but embracing and respecting the roots mm-hmm. of this whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Wherever whatever tent you found you find yourself in, then that's where you're at for now. And, and embrace it, trusting that's where God led you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, okay. The next quote of yours that I wrote down is the body of Christ is outside of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember reading on the Holy Spirit um, by St. Basil. And uh, I, I think maybe... I'd been in the church two years at this point, maybe not even that. And, you know, in a different circumstance, I'd be like, okay, well, let's watch out for prelates, you know, but I remember reading it and I'd never had this experience where it wasn't like an audible voice with a Greek accent. Right. But all I can say is I'd never had experience where I was reading something and then that voice that I'm partaking, it, it wasn't mine. It wasn't just me kind of, you know, you're reading and there's this like, it's almost like you're hearing yourself mouthing. You, you understand what I'm saying? It's like, there's something distinct. This was my first experience of communing with the saint. It's like, I was reading and, and I was brought to this place where I encountered St. Basil. And this encountering of St. Basil, this was one of my first experiences where I can look back and go like, oh, this is kind of like what it means to commune with the saint. Because from there, it's I've had all these experiences with St. Basil and, and asking his intercessions and having him answer my prayers and looking to him when I need to understand a theological issue. Like all of that's there. And St. Basil's not dead. St. Basil's alive. He's he's in the heavens, right? Um, St. Turbo, I mean, the fact that that's my name 
right? Uh, that in its that story in of itself is a whole thing. Oh, tell right? the story. I'm sure everybody wants to know. I'm sure there's people <laughs> watching right now who have never heard of Saint Turbo. Can't believe that that's a real saint's name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, my feast day on the new calendar just happened, and it's coming up here pretty quick. It's on the 16th of January. Um, so, so basically. Turbo was um, the name that I I had been given. It was given to me uh, in my youth when I was, you know, uh, getting when I was getting into the tattoo industry, the tattoo world. It was given to me, and um, you know, I wanted to uh, when I started becoming a Christian. I kind of wanted to get rid of it because it just kind of reminded me of that old person who I was trying to run away from, you know. But like any nickname, it's you know, you don't pick it, it's given to you and you can't just get rid of it. Like, you know, once it's given to you. So it, it was tough. And um, I don't know if you're, well, I don't know if anybody will remember pagers, but back in the day we had oh. pagers, you know, in voicemail. I mean, just to give you a point, I tried so hard to get rid of it. Even, even in the voicemail that I had, it was like, you've reached the artist formerly known as Turbo. You know, it was, I was kind of like joking around with it, but it was, but I was like trying to get rid of it, you know? And so at any rate, um, time goes on, you know, I become a Christian and years go by and it's just, it's kind of in and out. It's still there haunting me, if you will. So when, when we come to the church and it's getting time close for a baptism, I was, you know, I have to pick a patron saint. And so I was like, oh, who am I thinking about? So I was thinking about St. Martin of Tours. I was thinking of St. Moses the Strong, all these people. And uh, my friend, my friend, John, John Ma'ai, who's actually a deacon now, he called me up. He said, hey, are you still looking for a patron? And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm thinking about St. Martin Tours and that. And he's like, well, you better you better hold on because there's a St. Turbo. And I was like, what? Shut up. And I was just like, there's no way. No way. There, there's no way. He's like, no, really? He showed me this whole thing. And basically there was a grandmother who had triplet grandsons and they were martyred. And like many uh, accounts of martyrdom, you know, as a person witnessed it, then they professed Christ and they were martyred, right? So there's Eusebia and her triplet grandsons. And then there was a woman, uh, Eulamelia. There was a guy, Neon. There's all these people that were in this line. St. Turbo was the very last one to record this, the series of martyrdoms. And for that, he was martyred. And so I said to myself, I said, wow, this is crazy. You know, I mean, what are the odds of that? Like, what are the odds that there's a St. Turbo, you know, and, and this has been my name. And I've been trying to get rid of this name. And so I wasn't going to do it because I said to myself, you know what? No one's going to take me seriously. Everyone's going to every time they say my name, you know, they're going to chuckle. And, you know, and I was like so self-aware. I wanted to be taken seriously, all this stuff, you know. <laughs> but as time went on, it was like I just saw the Lord's hand in that. And I began to see something, you know, you pick a patron because that patron is someone who you feel has been with you, or you feel that patron is someone who is inspiring you, someone you want to be like. Mm -hmm. The first thing for me was St. Turbo was so obscure, like so obscure. And I am a proud, vain, terrible person. And that first glimpse for me was St. Turbo is obscure. And the only way we even know who he is is because he's pointing to those who knew Christ. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah. He was a beacon of humility for me. He was a beacon of me disappearing like St. John so that Christ, you know, I would, I need to decrease so that Christ would increase. So that was the first thing. He was a beacon of humility for me and, and just fading away. But the second thing was 
I realized, yeah, the only reason why we know the same turbo is because he was, again, he's pointing to these other saints. And for me, this is huge because what is iconography? Iconography is ultimately the remembrance of the saints yeah. in, the, in, in, in a visual form. And so it just made perfect sense. This is what St. Turbo was known for. This is how I came to the church. And it was just too perfect. And I got to tell you, there's been moments in my life when it's been hard. You know, I'm not gonna, it's not a sob story, but there's been moments in my life when people, you know, the enemy has worked through people and tried to say, I don't belong here. And I've always said, you know, I belong here. St. Turbo has been a beacon to remind me God, God chose the saint to call me so many years before I even knew him. Does that make sense? You know? So, wow. Yeah. So yeah. So same turbo, he's alive and he's real and he's in the heavens praying. It's like, it's kind of a weird, it's almost like an inversion of anything humble because I don't know how many people out there are named turbo in the church at this point. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, I'm definitely the only priest in the world that exists with that name. And <laughs> the, the thought that there's a saint who out of all the myriads of saints chose me to pray for that's, I mean, it almost brings me to tears now. It's humbling. Yeah. It's humbling. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Okay. So the next topic I would love for you to tell us about is theosis. And you've said that this is a purification process that can only be found in orthodoxy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the fathers have understood theosis in a kind of like a trifold way, a process of purification, illumination, and deification, ultimately. And this is, this is what salvation is for us. And so, you know, much of this, like, I can never really, I can't, I can only speak on what uh, the fathers have spoken of in regards to the deification itself, but purification, I'll talk to you all day long about it. Mm -hmm. And it is, um, you know, this experience of, of working out, you know, I'm talking about, right. And the burn and it's like, ah, oh, it's so terrible, mm -hmm. but it's so good at the same time. Yeah. It's purification. It's purification. It's, you know, I'm a musician in those years of, you know, working scales and learning and practicing and getting these calluses and, and not wanting to play it, but knowing you have to play like that, that's the purification. You know, it, it's, it's embracing the thing that you don't want to do because you know, it has a greater good, right? That process um, it's the cross. It's embracing the cross of Jesus. That's purification. Um, it's serving and loving others when you don't want to, that's purification. It's saying your prayers. When you just want to get on the phone or you just want to like eat or you just want to go to bed. Mm -hmm. That's purification. You know, it's accepting what your confessor says to you, even though you don't think what he's saying is correct and just embracing it. That's mm -hmm. purification, that burn, that's the light. And that we grow and learn to love that light in the same way an athlete learns to love his training or her endurance. And that is the thing that will guide us in eternity. That's the thing that will have us continuing to move forward towards Christ. Mm -hmm. That purification process, it never ends, but it transforms us and it changes us. And we begin to acquire a taste for it. And that taste then leads us to this place where at, according to how much we are allowing the Lord to purify us, we are now giving insights and illumination 
and it becomes the 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 fruit it's i wasn't able to run this quick now i can i wasn't able to play this long now i can mm-hmm. i wasn't able to lift this much now i can this is what illumination begins to look like mm-hmm. right and then from there things begin to happen and i can tell you this much from experience the grace of god is more than it's it's not even about feelings right it, the grace of god changes us and it isn't just about understanding in some sort of intellectual sense. You begin to actually experience the grace of God. You begin to actually experience the grace of God in your body. And you begin to experience the grace of God in your life. And you see the grace of God doing things that only God could do. Mm. Yeah, that's theosis. And the part about it only being found in orthodoxy, I know that is kind of triggering or, you know, um, there are some objections from Protestants about that or, or the Christians who believe in once saved, always saved. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, so I know so many converts. See, I'm not a convert from Western Christianity. God I bless you. Never, you're so fortunate. I, I was never a Christian. So, you're so <laughs> fortunate. That is, that is the best. You have the best ideal situation really yeah well, are you kidding me I no mean, there are some good things about it but some not so good things about it. listen as an artist i would much rather have you i'd much rather have a blank canvas mm-hmm. yeah than like okay how am i gonna work this here uh this and uh, this yeah. is really isn't in proportion like you know you, you see what i'm saying yeah yeah because i i'm online and i ha- i do have friends who are out of the new age but they went back to their Christian upbringing and the, these ideas about once saved, always saved, sola scriptura, and that the icons are pagan. And, you know, they, they have so many objections yeah. to orthodoxy. And, and I'm interested in this conversation. I really, I, well, it, I'm curious about it because I don't, I didn't come from there. So I don't. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I will tell you one of the first things to understand in regard to this conversation, and I don't know if this is appropriate for the audience because this sounds weird because I'm giving you some direction. Forgive me. Please. But the biggest, but the biggest thing is patience yeah. and prayer. Mm-hmm. Because remember I was sharing earlier in the interview, I was talking about, I always knew there was kind of more in my times of evangelical. I, did, I didn't know what it was, right? Mm-hmm. But that came from my time of being a spiritual seeker being in the new age, being the occult, whatever you want to call it, because I experienced certain things that were true, uh-huh. right? That matter matters, right? Like that's something that I learned that was being kind of denied as an evangelical, mm-hmm. right? Evangelicals have a weird kind of Gnosticism, you know, Gnosticism that they're wrapped up in and they don't even realize it. Mm-hmm. This denigration of the body and of matter yeah. that is, that is, really an obstacle to their their participation a greater participation in the life of christ right mm-hmm. primarily no sacraments right you can only go so far without sacrament without the sacraments mm-hmm. that's a full stop and i'm saying that as a convert i'm saying that as an orthodox christian who was formerly not and as a priest like you can only go so far mm-hmm. so when we talk about this it's it's almost like i'm saying to someone it's like well yeah, you know, there's this thing called an amplifier and this amplifier will not only project the sound of the guitar, but it also 
produce sounds that you just can't get without the amplifier. If you've never heard that, then like you can't visually, you can't conceptualize it. It's not an exact or a good analogy just came off the top of my head. But for those who have objections, I would just say to you, I understand your objections, but you can't really have them from an informed perspective because you don't know. Mm. You, you've never tasted, you've only seen TV in black and white. Mm-hmm. It's a different thing when it's in color and 3D and surround sound. So I think that's the first thing to kind of really begin to understand. And, and look, fundamentally speaking, um, very few Protestants even hold to what Luther taught at this point, even Lutherans, really, right? And Luther understood and believed in the true presence of Christ, which even that is a shadow of how the Eucharist is actually, how Christ is actually experienced in the Eucharist, but at least it's closer to something. Are you following me? Well, evangelicals fundamentally, they don't believe in it. They believe it's just crackers and juice. So, you know, it's like I tell my kids, both my spiritual and biological kids, I said, well, what, you know, let's do this. Well, I can't do it. I go like, yep, you're right. You can't, I guess that's that. Cause once you say you can't do something, you can't do it. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. So once you say to me, well, this is just crackers and juice. It's like, yeah, the Lord said, if you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And if you don't think that that's the case, then, then that's the case. And that's that. If you think that, death separates us right so when you say the communion of the saints is wrong and you say that death separates us well then guess what death does separate us and you're setting yourself up for an experience god help you that i don't think you want to have because automatically you're cutting yourself off from the hope that christ promises it's having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof as saint paul said and so i would encourage them to understand that for many evangelicals, not all, but for many of them, what they are taking as a living faith is really moralism. It's really a a structure of of etiquette, doctrines, morality. But Jesus says, the scriptures that you study, they speak of me. And so moving beyond these, moving beyond your apprehension of scripture, beyond your apprehension of what it means to be a Christian, and actually moving into this place where you bow your knee and you allow the living Lord to bring you into life, to bring you into color, to bring you into 3D. Does that make sense? You know, I mean, that's, it's something that you have to experience. And I think to be frank, simply beginning to understand history mm-hmm. and beginning to understand, you know, when you find people who are very skeptical of history, that should tell you something. You find people are like, they don't want to go into church. We find church leaders who don't want to go into church history. That should be a big red flag for yeah. you. Something's wrong. Yeah. Brother Augustine has talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. It's huge. Okay. We've talked about a couple of these things. Oh, you know, a topic that is probably you could do an entire two hour discussion on this. So we'll try to keep it. I'll try to keep it short, but um, I loved what you said about the the world's problems, how today and in the past people are trying to solve the world's problems without the presence of God in the equation and mm-hmm. what a problem that is. Can you talk about, about that a little bit more? Sure. Well, from the the 
the micro to the macro, a husband and a wife have problems because they're fundamentally seeing their own perspective on it and not Christ mm-hmm. and not the other's perspective. A family fundamentally has problems because each person, whoever's in whatever kind of consternation, they're refusing to let go of you know their bone like a dog, whatever. Mm-hmm issue they have they're holding to their perspective and they need to get their point across right a parish a, a neighborhood a nation uh, right you just it, it's it scales up from there mm. when you bring christ into the equation truly if two parties bring christ into the equation it, there will always be a solution 100 foolproof guaranteed that's a law that's a that's a that's a cosmic law so some people say like okay Father Turbo, well, what about these stories I hear of monks fighting and this and that, you know, and parishes breaking up and families breaking up? What about that? And I go like, that proves my point exactly. Because someone says, in an idolatrous sense, no, my perspective on Christ and my thing of Christ, this is what it is. And someone says, no, right? So they fundamentally, neither one of them have given themselves over to Christ, mm-hmm. right? When you have two parties that do that, there will always be resolution. Let every man be a liar, but Christ is true. So I know that's maybe too simple, but it is that simple. It's just not that easy, mm-hmm. right? Because that requires oftentimes a person to take upon themselves the yoke of Christ and say, I'm going to die here. I'm going to lose here, right? But I'm going to lose with the understanding and the faith that there will be a resurrection. You know what? I can try to correct my husband all day long on this one. But until Christ brings that correction to him, I'm just going to continue this cycle of violence. It's a very, it's almost a, a Girardian thing. Rene Girard is just like this kind of like cycle of violence will, will perpetuate as long as a person is engaging it. But the second you disengage, the second you say, I'll die. Okay. You know, okay, honey. Right. And not just a, okay, honey, like I'm a rag doll, like I don't matter. But uh, okay, honey, and you go and dinner may get burned, right? But you go and, and you're saying the prayer and you're genuinely praying for your husband at that moment. And you're like, Lord, please like help us in this moment. Help my husband. And I, I'm I'm not pushing my way, Lord, because I, I need you to reveal yourself in this situation. Christ will, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah. the... The thing that comes up for me again and again is about pride and doing it my way, my will. And, you know, I lived my life that way for so long. And now I'm trying to turn toward Christ and I want to be as close to God as I can. And it, and it takes effort to remember him sometimes and, yeah. and not need to be the one who's right in my argument with my husband, like you're talking about. And well, I'll tell you a little secret. I tell, especially with my daughters, I tell them this. Um, The problem is often when you're right. You understand what I'm saying there? The problem is when you're right. It's often when you are right. That's the harder thing is to be correct. Right. But oftentimes, you know, you'll be holding on to being correct. Mm -hmm. And that, cor- that correctness is actually the very thing that needs to stop, mm. right? It's better, that, it's better to have a meal of meager than 
than strive with much, right? It's better that you may be correct in the technical sense of what a situation is calling for, but many times it's better that you let that go and trust God and, and in letting that go and letting the correctness go, you know, the good will come, Mm -hmm. right? The best is the enemy of the good, Hmm. right? And so you want the good, not the best. Hmm. It says in Romans 8, 28, that all things work for good for those who love God or call to his purposes. I challenge you. I challenge anyone. If you begin to practice this, what you'll find is in the missteps, in your missteps and in the missteps of others, when you begin to practice faith, trusting God, what you'll find is even in people's missteps, God will give you the eyes to see how he's using those missteps, right? It's not, I'm not saying, you know, let us, you know, let us sin so that grace abounds. That, that's not what I'm saying, right? Mm-hmm. But what it is, is you begin to step back and you go like, Lord, have mercy. This is incredible. God is playing chess, not checkers. God plays chess. He moves things in such a way that's just like, he's so many moves ahead of us. And that misstep that someone's making, you want to come in there and you want to correct it. You want to put it down. You want to do this and that. And it's just like, yeah, you could do that. Or maybe you could step back and allow God to work in you and in them through your humility. Through the death, through the Lord's death on the cross, so much was accomplished. And forgive me. This is just my, the Laguma, as we'd say, my speculation. But I think I feel comfortable saying more was accomplished by Christ losing than him being a victor. What do I mean by that? From a worldly perspective, Christ is a rousing loser. He, he taught, he had a, a band of rabble rousers that he had. But ultimately, the state grabbed him, shushed him, killed him, mocked him, put him down. He failed. There was no insurrection. There was no government. You understand what I'm saying? From a worldly perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But actually, it was precisely through that that so much more was able to come forward. It says in the scripture that if a grain of wheat falls in the ground, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth fruit a hundredfold. And Christ dying. Look how much was brought forward. His whole kingdom was brought forward by him losing, right? And so in losing, he gained and we gained everything. That principle applies to you fighting with your husband. It applies to you arguing with your auntie. It applies to whatever disagreement with the parish council president. Do you understand what I'm saying? It it scales up and down infinitely. Okay, well, I did have a big argument with my auntie, so... How how does this? I haven't discovered the the good thing out of it. So help me. <laughs> so uh, without the details, right? Because maybe that's something we have to talk about offline or something. But um, in the book, there's there's a book that just came out. Um, it's a compilation of the writings of St. Ignatius Ibnachino. It's called The Field. It's a series of The Field, The Refuge, and there's another one. But in The Field, there's a chapter there on patience. And in that chapter on patience, St. Ignati, he talks a lot about self-accusation. And when you begin to practice this, now let's be clear, 
self-accusation, humility isn't about thinking that you're uh, worthless. Humility isn't thinking less about yourself. It's thinking less often about yourself. Right. I love that. Yeah. Right. So understanding that this practice here, you can, once you practice it, you can apply it anywhere. Let me give you another example. Um, If you learn the concept of, if you learn how to play a guitar, you kind of can play any guitar in any bass in theory, right? If you learn how to cook in a general sense, right? You can kind of learn how to cook, right? So you need to learn these principles. And then once you get these principles and you practice them, then you're able to apply them in a specific situation. I, I'm, I'm leery sometimes of going too much into detail. I do this a lot in like catechism class or when I'm giving instruction. I try not to go too, de- too much into detail about particular situations, unless it's a child, spiritual child coming to me and saying, I have this particular problem. Because not that I don't want to address it and not that I don't think it's it's worth of worth my time, but the problem is, is I, I worry when people take a broad principle and then they they can sometimes they can sometimes impede their ability to assimilate the principle by being too myopic or being too like, okay, I learned this principle in dealing with my auntie. Okay, good, but it's better that you learn the principle and then apply the principle to your auntie versus the other way around. If it's too, if it's too associated with a particular context, mm-hmm. sometimes it becomes hard for you to see how that principle is broad mm-hmm. and it's applicable in other areas. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it does. So, yeah. so I would just say to you, you know, I don't know what the situation with your auntie is, but you know, I would say pray for her, right? Humble yourself in regards of look for where you need to own the riff. Mm-hmm. And, and in doing that, if you look to see where you need to own the riff, that will help you pray for her better. And the better you pray for her, the more you'll be able to see her and think about her without the negative connotations. And when those negative connotations begin to melt away, then something pretty amazing happens. I'll tell you a little secret. Free will is the guiding principle of everything for us as human beings, right? Everyone mm-hmm. in the church or not. God never violates people's free will. Right. But he has a back door. <laughs> and you're the back door. So many times God cannot get directly. He's knocking on the front door and people won't open it. But there's something about when you're connected in love with someone and you begin to pray for them, that's the back door that God uses. And now he's able to work through you of your free will of giving yourself to him as Lord and Savior. And now he's able to work through you in a way to speak to the heart of someone who otherwise their free will, their front door is locked against him, but that back door is wide open and you're the back door. Hmm. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Wow. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank God. Could you, before we move on, would you please repeat Romans 8? 28, because you said it kind of fast. I didn't, I didn't really get to hear. Sure. Romans 8, 28, all things work for good for those who love God and are called to his purposes. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's a, there's a little concept called um, arrow prayers, these small prayers. We know it mostly as the Jesus prayer, right? But that concept applies to also the use of scripture, right? Evagoras talks about it in the context of talking back. So many times the spiritual warfare, the devil is attacking you. And part of the things that we need to learn to do is discern what is God, what is, yes, what is God, 
<clears throat> what is me? What is God? But in this case, what's the devil? What is me? Because so many times what the devils do is they will camouflage and they habituate you to hearing their suggestions in your voice. And so you think that it's you, but it's not you mm. actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So having scripture and knowing certain scriptures to address the ways that you're accused, remember Satan is accuser. It's the way that you're being attacked and accused, having certain scriptures like Romans 8, 28, oftentimes is a great way of talking back and shooting arrows back at to kind of like flatten out and to disarm those attacks, mm. you know? So Romans 8, 28 is a good one because when you see things are kind of getting out of control, then you can remember that that prayer puts you back in the line where you let go and you allow yourself to now see how God's going to work things out. Oh my gosh. That is so important. Yeah, it's it's so through. easy to forget to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Actually spiritual warfare is something I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah. Yeah. It's you're in it. And I've heard that I mean, I've heard over and over that as I approach my baptism and then even right after my baptism, there's going to be kind of a uptick and attacks. Is that, have you found that with your spiritual family? Of course. And (laughs) for you, it's going to be even greater because you have this wonderful channel (laughs) you're trying to share. So it's really important that, you know, you get with your your priest, your spiritual father, your godparents, and like, you know, you really, you ask the Holy Spirit to really illuminate those who God's putting into your life to give you what you need to arm yourself. Because if you want to continue this beautiful, wonderful ministry you have, if you want to continue to be a wonderful wife, you know, if you want to continue to be all these things, you need God's help and you need God to get your back. And, you know, there's a certain... I don't want to, you know, kind of be scary, but there's a measure where people, I think they're ignorant to the need for them to engage it. They just go like, Oh, it's all going to work out. God's going to fix it. And it's like, yes, but you have to understand God's enlisted you. Mm -hmm. So since God's enlisted you, you need to really kind of take hold of that and you need to participate in it and you need to fight. When you get baptized, that's the beginning, my dear. That's not the, it's not like, oh, I've come to my catechism, I've made it. It's like, no, now you're ready. Now it's beginning, right? You're, you're, you're being given your vocation as priest and king and prophet. You know, this every Christian is given this as an anointed one. You're given these gifts. You're given the gift of the Holy Spirit, baptism and chrismation. You're given two eyes to see. So now you need to see. Now you need to, to navigate the world. You need to navigate the world as a warrior, not as a passive spectator. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest thing about spiritual warfare is getting engaged. It's the devil never is off. He never takes, he never says, you know, I'll see you later. I'm going to go get a beer. I'll be back in like 40, you know, 48 hours. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Lately, my thing is sleep. I, I, I'm one of those people, probably like many people who require quality sleep to be able to function. (laughs) And I've had very, very poor sleep. At first it was only Saturday nights. So I would sleep very poorly so that I wouldn't want to go to church on Sunday. And now it seems it's been pretty much every night I have poor sleep. Well, you'll also notice too, that those things 
they aren't incidental. Look, when we get into the church, the first thing, one of the first things I do with someone, um, and by God's grace, I've been in the position where I've had to work with a lot of people who have come out of addiction, um, abuse. I've worked with a lot of people who have come out of the occult, right? So like all of these things, right? One of the first things I have to do is help them to get order, right? Order. And that order is really easy. We look at the broader, bigger picture, the macro of the liturgical life and the ascetical life of the church, fasting, prayer, all these things, almsgiving. And we begin to increasingly match our life to the rhythm of the church. We begin to dance, right? So sleeping is very much a part of that as well. But the trick is not sleeping too much, right? And so there is this, remember, the devil doesn't care. He wants to ruin your body and ruin your mind by not getting enough sleep and having you think that you're some some crazy ascetic, right? That's that's one side of delusion. The other side is just like, oh, you need sleep. And like people will just get too much sleep and it will rob them of certain faculties, right? So this is the type of thing that I think people need to understand how practical orthodoxy is. And there's answers to these things, right? Through prayer and through submission to the right channels, our spiritual fathers and all this good stuff, what we find is like, oh, yes, right? There, there will be something that will be right for me, right? That we have the life of the church, the liturgical life, the ascetical life as the litmus, as the standard, which none of us meet perfectly, but we're always striving to be in harmony with it. And we have our spiritual fathers and our godparents and such to help us not be too rigid and not be too lax, the world path, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's how we do it. That's how we do it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Yeah. You've mentioned St. Sophroni a few times uh, in the hypostatic uh, principle. Yeah. So for someone who doesn't know about St. Sophroni, what would you like to tell us? God plays chess, not checkers. And God has chosen and picked and revealed certain elders and certain saints for a reason. And St. Sophroni is like the example of that par excellence. St. Sophroni is the saint of our age, of our time. He's He understands the grief, the despondency, the madness, the, the temptations of what we face. St. Sophroni, who spent years in, in, in transcendental meditation and, and seeking Eastern paths. He understands what it means to fall off and to what, before he's even called new age. And he repented of it bitterly. He understands the seduction of that. He understands what it means to look at the horror and the madness of the world and learn not to flinch. You know, I tell my spiritual children, remember orthodoxy is about learning not to flinch. Mm-hmm. That's what orthodoxy does. It teaches you how to not flinch, how to look at life with that patristic mindset, the fathers didn't flinch, right? And so that flinching is what we, this is that kind of weakness leaving, that that learning to, to embrace the endurance that we have. And so when we begin to understand that this isn't just abstract principles and concepts, but they are embodied in the lives of saints, par excellence, Saint Sophroni, who speaks to us, such profound heights of vision of God, 
love of God, the humility of God, the personhood of God, but at the same time understands our weakness and our brokenness and our darkness. He understands our darkness like no other saying, at least translated in English, right? So I would say for anyone who has struggled with despondency, anyone who struggled with actual kind of like nihilism and this existential dread, St. Sophroni is your man. He will show you the beauty and the light and the truth so that you can face the horror of reality because the world that we live in is horrific. And one of the biggest things that I'm really big on, I'm keen on is too many people have a sentimental approach to orthodoxy and it kind of needs to stop Mm -hmm. because it leads people in these very treacherous positions to where they aren't prepared to see life as it is. If you're an Orthodox Christian, you need to have the strength and the faith to face the world without flinching. You need to be able to see the horror, right? Because it's only in that space that you begin to actually take the pain, the, the pain of life, and turn it into prayer. And absolutely, it's possible. Saints are from you did it, and we can do it, and you can do it. I've seen it too many times. I've seen people take the terror of being molested and abused and abandoned or abusing others and and turn that into repentance and turn it into prayer. It's not just something I've read about. It's something I've experienced in my own life and I've seen it over and over again. Mm. It's possible. See, that's the big thing is nothing I'm saying is about reading something from a book and parroting it. It's this is, this is real life. Mm -hmm. I'm here, not because I've read something. I'm here because the Lord Jesus Christ has saved me. And he's brought me to his church. And he's brought me out of incredible darkness, incredible darkness. So St. Sophroni, he's, yeah, he reveals to us, he's beautiful. He's beautiful. So has he written books? I mean, is there some way I can learn mm-hmm. more from him? Forgive me. I'm just blathering on about it. Um, he's written, there's more and more coming out. I mean, you know, we're always at, we as English speakers are always at a kind of disadvantage, right? But I would encourage everyone, if you're going to read some Sophroni, start off with His Life is Mine. Oh, that's on my list, actually. Yeah. Or maybe you, maybe because you've mentioned it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Start off with His Life is Mine and just understand that it's, it is rich. It is. And do not be mistaken for how thin it is. Uh-huh. It's, it's like lummis bread. You know what lummis bread is? No, I don't. Uh, and the Lord of the Rings is this bread that the elves made. And like one little nibble can feed like a grown man for like 13 mm. days, whatever. So like his life of mine is not some big, thick tome, but it is so dense and it's so rich. It's one of those things like you just have to take your time and just, it's like every paragraph is just your, it's bone marrow just oh it's just nutrients so oh my good. gosh what a great metaphor <laughs> yeah it's so good it's so good so i'd start there okay and what about a, just one more similar recommendation for someone like me who is coming out of um there's actually something even thinner called words of life and it's put out by his monastery and it's excerpts of his sayings that were previously untranslated. They're like excerpts that he gave his spiritual children. That's excellent. Cause it's not so much a book that you read and kind of like a kind of like point A to point B. It's just these excerpts. It's very good. And it's that, man, it's that bone marrow. I mean, it's just, he talks about 
real things in a real way, but it's so erudite and lofty at the same time. I mean, there are, there are writers and there are people who they write in such an erudite way. It's so um, self-aware that you can't almost handle it in a bad way. Sophroni, St. Sophroni, he has a God-given gift of being so erudite, so articulate, and, and having such a power of expressing, articulating spiritual truths that are so subtle, yet so brutal in their impact. And God bless these translators because they're doing a great job of translating the beauty of who he is and his words into English. So that's something a lot of us miss out on is, you know, translator, may Lord, may the Lord bless all the translators out there that are trying to translate these great works because they really need to be inspired because a translation can ruin so much. Mm. And so this is a great example. The one, the, the, I think it's a nun, one of his spiritual daughters who translated words. I mean, it's incredible. So that's a great, that's another good one to pick up. There's, there's other works. Um, we shall see him as he is. I would recommend people not really to jump into that quite yet. You know, start off with what I just said first. Because one of the things I worry about sometimes is that someone can pick up Sophroni and it's too early. And it's not so much that they'll kind of fall into delusion, but sometimes people think like, okay, whatever. Like, oh yeah, I've read Sophroni. And it's like, anyone who says to me like, oh yeah, I've read Sophroni. If they do that to me, like, oh, you've never read Sophroni. Yeah, because you are, yeah. It's kind of like, you know, someone can watch Bruce Lee throw a punch and be like, oh, okay, I can do that. It's like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> right? It's like, it may seem like a simple punch to you, but the control, the speed, the deafness, the softness, mm-hmm. the hardness all at once, that mastery. So I just, it, it's its important to understand that when you're reading Sophroni, you're reading in many ways, like the height, you know, uh, of these types of, you know, um, noetic, works right he's speaking about spiritual reality in a way that is just at such a high level Mm. well father um thank you so much can you let us know what you'll be doing with patristic faith are you writing articles are you going to have your i guess i'm sure the royal path there there's going to be a link to that Mm-hmm. What, what can yeah. we what can we uh, look forward to from well, you? Well, Road Path will be there. Um, at some point in time this year, I'm also going to be producing a Bible study <gasps> that I'm going to be making available uh, for people to participate in and to see and all that stuff. So uh, keep an eye on that. I think I'll have that go through there. And um, with God's help, I definitely plan on um, doing some writing and releasing some some thoughts and I'll do that through patristic faith that'll be the the kind of exclusive source that I'll disseminate that stuff through so right. yeah as God as God allows God it helps me so and also I just want to say um, amazing that you have eight children <laughs> and how blessed yeah. they are for you to be their biological father and then all of your spiritual children how blessed they are as well and well god help them because i'm you know i'm I'm a looney tune um but i have to just say um and i'm just i'm not just trying to be that guy but it's my wife Mm. it's it's she's done so much um and there's that whole thing about people don't know what goes on people only see what they see Mm -hmm. but behind all that you know my wife 
is truly the Christ-like one, sacrificing, giving up, and no one, no one applauds her. She doesn't get the pat on the back. She doesn't get the accolades. Like she's the one who manifests Christ to me so that I can, so that I can experience love, so that I can experience forgiveness. You know, this, I just have to say that, you know, because I don't, I don't acknowledge her enough. She doesn't get the acknowledgement. And I just, without her, and this is the same for every priest's wife, for every wife, whether priest or not, um, the role of a wife, and, and I just can't say enough about it, the role of a Christian woman being that that heartbeat of, of, of a household, it's like, what can you say, you know? So I just have to say that that's giving her, pointing to her, that's so important that people understand that. God bless her. Yeah. Yeah, God bless her. And God bless you. And please say a prayer for all of us out here who are... Yeah, God bless you. God <laughs> Struggling. You yeah, God give you strength for your fight. You know, when are you getting baptized? I don't have a date set yet. It's um, well, make sure you let me know. I'll be I'll be praying for you. Oh, thank make you. sure you let me know. You know, and uh, I'll give your name to the nuns here. The nuns will be praying for you. And, oh, you know, thank you, Father. God so give much. you. God give you the strength. You know, He already has, but <laughs> you know, keep fighting. So. Mm. All right. Well, this has been one of the most educational interviews, maybe the most educational. I've I've learned so much from you today. Thank you. Thank, thank you again so much. Thank God. Well, my joy to be with you. And thank you to my audience. Thank you for your comments, your likes, your shares. This is definitely one that's going to be shared, I'm sure. So, um, and those of you who have supported me financially. I'll keep you anonymous, but please know that I am so grateful for you. You're allowing me to keep running this show. And um, I want to let everybody know that my episodes are now available on Spotify. You can oh, wow. share, yeah, you can wow. share those as well. Um, for the month of January, 2022, I'm uploading one episode per day. So by February, we'll be all caught up and um, yeah, I really appreciate just the feedback, the messages I get on Instagram. If anybody's in, interested in my coaching for women, you can reach me at a devotional heart on Instagram. I'm also on Telegram. And actually, my link tree that I just created will be in the description and you can find all my links there. So for now, I will wish you all a beautiful day and I'll see you next time and God bless you all. Bye.